to be then now eight, nine years later and to be at the beginning again, it was really, really hard. And I think that idea that at the time I felt like, gosh, all those years spent in banking just felt like a waste. Happy holidays and welcome to Career Relaunch, the podcast focused on helping you create a more fulfilling career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have stepped off the beaten path to reinvent their careers and successfully make a major career change. We talk through their unique personal stories, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you take your own brave steps to improve your career and life. Today, my guest is going to explain how she relaunched her career from being an investment banker to a couples counselor. We'll discuss how your career affects your relationships and the emotions of starting over. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll explain how I dealt with the loss I felt after leaving one career behind. Today, I'm speaking with Erica Boissier. As a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in couples counseling, she founded the Relationship Institute of San Francisco. She's also an adjunct instructor at Golden Gate University, teaching master-level courses to students learning to be marriage and family therapists. After working for nearly a decade in the financial services sector for firms such as BlackRock and other buy-side and sell-side firms, Erica followed her passion to help others lead more fulfilling lives and changed careers to become a couples and relationship therapist. Now, I've had the privilege of meeting Erica in person before we recorded this conversation, and I think she does a really good job of explaining the emotional dynamics of changing careers, which really resonated with me. If you want to learn more about Erica or the Relationship Institute of San Francisco, visit careerrelaunch.net slash 31. Erica spoke with me from San Francisco. Okay. Hello, Erica, and thanks for taking time to speak with me here on Career Relaunch. We're going to talk today about your time as an investment banker and how you eventually started your own counseling practice. But to kick things off, could you just start off by sharing what you're focused on right now in your career and life as a couples and relationship therapist? Right now, I am hyper-focused on building a business here in San Francisco that's focused on couples counseling and relationship therapy. It takes, what I've humbly realized is it takes quite a bit to launch a business. And I'm well underway, but to grow your business is sort of where I'm at at this point trying to climb the walls of, of Google and make brand awareness the focus. What do you think has been the hardest part of starting your own practice so far? You know, I think all of us at some point when you sort of hang your shingle, so to speak, you have a vision of what you want it to be. I remember that vision a long time ago when I first started my master's program at uh, University of San Francisco. And to create that vision it takes just an incredible amount of work. I mean, whether it's building your website, setting up a call call central for all the therapists that are on our team, to SEO, to writing blogs, just the amount of work that it takes to create a business. Yeah, I definitely want to hear more details about how you founded your practice. So let's come back to that. But I would love to start by going back in time a little bit to the days when you were working in the financial services sector. Can you tell us about your work as an investment banker? I chose my career like many of us did around 22 years of age. I had graduated college and that budding question that almost every single human being on the planet was asking me, which was, what are you going to do with your degree? And I didn't entirely know. I had graduated with an economics degree from University of Colorado and 
was setting my sights on San Francisco. And at the time, finance felt like a safe option. It felt like something that I could explain to people easily. It had a really easy trajectory, hypothetically good income if you're good at it. And so back then, I chose that career for the ideas of safety and what would impress people. And it just made a decision and then sort of went for it. Um, I didn't spend an insane amount of time really sort of vetting all the career options. I felt like I was thrust into the corporate world and having to make a decision on which way to go. And I liked the idea of the stock market and I liked the idea of having that intense job that's always where I've thrived. And so I went into banking, not entirely conscious, I don't think. But yeah, so that's, that's how I got started at least. When you were thinking about going into investment banking, I know you mentioned that it was sort of this vague impression of what could be an interesting career. If you were to pin down one or two things about investment banking that you felt were most attractive to you, what do you think those were, at least in your former self when you're looking ahead? I wanted a career that people would be proud of me. And so saying that you worked in finance sort of has a appeal, so to speak, that you're, you know, you're good with numbers and you can work really hard. And that was a huge driver. I wanted that career path that was just sort of laid out. I'm an athlete. And so the idea of sort of training and, you know, if you do this much for this long, then you'll get to this sort of point. And so that was really attractive to me. And then when you actually got into investment banking, how do you think the reality compared to what you perceived it to be? You know, in the beginning, my first corporate jobs, it was really exciting, right? You got up and you got work clothes and you had a paycheck, which was, you know, I had, I'd worked before, obviously, but I'd never had like health benefits and bus pass. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- <laughs> right. those things were like, you know, they're exciting and you know, living in the city. And I don't know what the exact timing was, but then I think that wore off. And I started to realize... I just wasn't excited about what I was doing. And yet I was, I think there was a huge part of my psychology with it. You know, like I was telling you earlier, I'm I'm an athlete. And so I was like, no, I'm just going to sort of pound this out. And, you know, I woke up and did a great job and as best as I could work. But there was a, a sort of a slow humming in the back of my brain that this was not it. And it was exactly that. It was a slow hum. It wasn't this loud, oh my gosh, I got to get out of this job. It's awful. It, it was, that was not my journey. My journey was very much, this job is okay. This job is, most people would kill for this job. I should be grateful, but I'm not fulfilled. And is that enough to leave a job? I sort of wrestled with that for a number of years. It wasn't something that was keeping me up at night per se. It was just, like I said, it was sort of that, those moments where you're like in the elevator and you're like, hmm, is this really, is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? I remember back in business school that investment banking was one of the three most popular areas that people wanted to go to after their MBA, along with consulting and marketing. For those people who aren't familiar with investment banking, can you just give us a glimpse into what your day-to-day life was like? Like, What were you actually doing? I worked for what's called a buy-side and a sell-side firm. The traditional investment banking idea is that we research companies to potentially take them public. They already are public to raise them additional money to further their business. Another part of the investment banking that I worked for a good while was in their equity research team. And that's essentially where we do analysis 
on companies that are already public and we forecast how well we think they're going to be doing in the future. And so this gives the market information on the health of a company. So every quarter we would get up very, very early and listen to their quarterly release calls. And that essentially would tell us how well they did and how well our forecast was. So a lot of writing, a lot of number crunching per se, and we did a lot of PowerPoint. You know, back then it was only PowerPoint, <laughs> but they're called pitch decks and they were like the bane of my existence because, you know, on the 99th slide, it had to be absolutely perfect. You know, not a period out of place, not a, <laughs> not a pixel off. Right. So we did a lot of, a lot of PowerPoint decks on um, sort of selling our services. I know you mentioned that there wasn't a moment in time where the skies kind of parted and you decided you want to do something else. But at what point did the analysis and the forecasting and the PowerPoint slide creation, at what point (laughs) did that start to bother you or start to make you think that maybe I should consider doing something else with my days? The best analogy I can give you is if you have an injury, like your ankles hurt or your knee is keeps aching and aching and aching. And eventually that pain gets so loud that you have to recognize it. I think that would be the the way that I would describe it. I was sort of limping along in finance and in finance, you work for lots of different people and lots of different personalities. And the personalities tend to be, you know, a little (laughs) little on the harsher side. Uh And I had a couple of experiences where, you know, you're just sort of going into work and those devil in the details that I was mentioning earlier, like that PowerPoint deck and just having managers really upset with you because on the 118th slide, you didn't do something correct. That wore me out. And I started to look a little bit deeper inside myself. This was in now my late 20s. So I sort of slugged it out for you know a number of years. And I just started to ask some bigger questions of myself, which is, is this really what I want to be doing five years, 10 years, 15 years? How do I imagine myself at 50 years old? How do I imagine myself at 60 years old? Am I here in this bank? Am I this person that I'm working for? And so when I started to look out a little bit more rather than just straight down, that really helped me because I was like, no, the answer is no to that. I don't want to be here. There's more to life than being moderately happy or moderately satisfied with my career, which is something that I think I've always envisioned, even as an adolescent, as something that I really wanted to be proud of. And I wasn't really proud of what I was doing because I really wasn't proud of myself. So once you started to get these rumblings that maybe this wasn't where you wanted to spend the rest of your life, and when you looked upward in the organization, those roles didn't appeal to you, what did you decide to do next? When I was originally in my undergrad, I had originally signed up for my initial major as psychology. And I was a freshman at University of Colorado and I was like first semester in and I got cold feet. I was like, psychology, I can't do psychology. (laughs) What, you know, (laughs) the the pay is terrible. What does a psychologist really do? And I just freaked out. And at that time, though, the reason that I had chosen psychology was because I had an idea at the ripe age of 18 years old that I wanted to become a therapist. But that felt very, very far um, and just too hard of a path and too vague. And so I swung over to economics. And that felt like I was telling you earlier about sort of the earlier part of my journey that just felt very, very safe. It impressed people and all the things that I named earlier. I had always in the back of my mind 
wanted like there's like that deep desire place of wanting to be a therapist, but way too scared to admit it to myself to chart that course, so to speak. And I would say that that had stuck with me throughout my journey through finance as this low grade thought that I had of "Hmm, that would be an interesting career. And could I, would I, what, what does that even look like? Oh, what do you think held you back from making that leap over to psychology more quickly? Part of it was logistics. I just couldn't get around the hurdle of like, what do I actually physically have to do to realize that dream? And the idea of like a master's versus a doctoral program, how would I get the loans? How would I support myself, rent and my cell phone bill and whatever, all the other expenses that go into a life? That was the initial holdback. Like, I don't even know how I would like put this plan together. And then the second part, which is, am I capable of this? Am I capable of sort of leaving this lily pad and doing what felt at that time? I mean, it felt like I was crossing the Grand Canyon, whether it was telling it to my friends, telling it to my managers, telling it to my family, telling it to myself. It felt way bigger than I actually think it was. I think that is quite common. When you look ahead, it seems really daunting. And when something's quite vague, that doesn't help. How did you start to put the pieces together? Like, How did you get over that feeling of the chasm being so great between where you are and where you wanted to go? I started to put pen to paper. We teach that a lot in psychology is that just as you described, there's this huge unknown that I was experiencing. And when I started to get a little bit more inertia, a little bit more momentum, I started looking up programs. And at the time, I didn't even know that you could get a PhD, you can get a master's and which route I wanted to go. And that there were night schools um, like University of San Francisco. And I started to brainstorm a little bit, like, could I hold a part-time finance job and go back to school nighttime? And so I actually started to like, like that of a rough draft, start to just sketch out what are my possibilities what do the numbers look like? And this was all done very sort of independent, you know, like (laughs) late at night randomly. And, you know, I would sort of play with it a little bit. And then I started to pick up more momentum when I realized, wow, there's a lot of options out there for me. You know, University of San Francisco had spoken to me because they had this night school program. And I was like, God, I wonder if I could, at the time I was at BlackRock. um, And I was wondering, could I potentially ask my manager, could I work part-time? And Could I go to school part-time? Like, is that even an option that they would support? And so, yeah, it was rough drafting. It was realizing I had a lot more options than I had allowed myself. I mean, I just didn't know. There's a lot of options out there when you start to be a little bit more resourceful and not so narrow-minded, which is where I initially was. And when you eventually moved on to your first psychology role, I think that was at the University of San Francisco Center for Child and Family yeah. Development, yeah. right? What was that like for you to get into your first role in what is a completely different industry from iBanking? <laughs> Such a good question. I remember not knowing what to wear. I mean, I remember showing up at, you know, it's a school-based counseling program. It was not ultimately what I wanted to do. I knew throughout my master's program that I wanted to be a couples therapist, but the state of California has a, a rule that you have to accumulate so many children hours. So you have to work with children for 500 hours to get licensed, which makes good sense. But yeah, I remember I was on the San Francisco Muni in what felt like really relaxed clothing. In banking, you wear slacks and 
heels and collared shirts and pearls. And mm-hmm. it was a funny moment. And then showing up at the school and I was what they call in, in California, a trainee, which is sort of the, the lowest, um, you know, if you can say the hierarchical road to, to becoming a therapist, this is sort of the lowest marker. And remembering that, just that moment of being like, wow, I am, I am at the beginning of this and how humbling I was already at the beginning in banking uh, when I was young at 22, but to be then now, you know, eight, nine years later and to be at the beginning again, it was hard. It was really, really hard. And I think that idea that at the time I felt like, gosh, all those years spent in banking just felt like a waste. Like no one really cared that I had done all these, what I thought were really cool things. They didn't care at all. I was like, okay, well, how do you work with kids? I was like, uh, <laughs> um, I, I haven't. I mean, I've been a camp counselor. And so to <laughs> sort of schlep what felt like a lot of grueling hours in banking, and it ended up now kind of where I'm at now, it ended up not being a waste. But at that time, it felt like all those years in banking was just sort of chucked to the side. It, it was a hard moment. Yeah, I know one of the things that really dissuades people from making a career change, Erica, is this exact idea that you're talking about of having to start over and to feel like you're throwing away all that you've invested in your other career. How did you handle that? Like, How did you ultimately come to terms with that? Initially, I didn't want to let it go. Even in my master's program, I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> work in investment banking. And this is not in psychology. People that is just not their jam. I mean, they, they sort of look at you like, I mean, cool, I guess. They were not impressed by it. And so I think I just took a deep breath and realized that while my finance days were valuable to me, I had to come to terms myself that, yes, the banking days taught me a ton of unique skill sets. And I had to sort of shelf those for a bit going, you know what, I'll, I'll pull from that sort of inventory at a later date. But right now I have got to turn that humility part to my personality higher and realize that I am at the beginning. I mean, I just had to like, just swallow that pill and go, I I don't know anything about really working with kids in a psychological setting. I am new to working with couples. I am new to working with depression and really come to terms with the fact that I am at the beginning Now, ultimately, you decided to stay in the world of therapy and psychology. What kept you going in that field? Because I know you mentioned that there are these elements of having to start over and having to learn the ropes. What ultimately kept you in this new industry versus falling back into what probably would have been a convenient move or just staying in the investment banking industry? I spent a long time thinking about this career change. I mean, for me, it was, yeah, it was eight years. And so I was going into this career change, very conscious, very aware, having done homework, having all the things that I probably should have done when I was 22. And when you're doing that career change, you're like, okay, I'm leaving a lily pad to go jump onto another lily pad. And I really want to make this work. For me, I didn't want to bounce to another career change. And so I entered that master's program, what I felt like sort of guns a blazing, like, I'm like, I'm going to do this job and I'm going to, I want to hit it out of the park. I want to get a group practice. I want to start my own business. I want to swing for the fences. 
because I'm leaving something that was very safe and I want to create that same safety, but I'm going to create it for myself. Were there any particular clues that you felt or saw along the way that helped convince you that you were doing the right thing? It is a feeling that I have when I'm sitting with a couple and even when they're in their darkest hour, and I would absolutely say that couples, when they come into counseling, usually they're just, they're having a tough go. They're unhappy and yet they believe in each other. I'll say wouldn't be spending the time or money. But when I'm sitting with that couple and I'm working with them, I just know that I'm where I'm supposed to be. It's a feeling that says, I figured it out. I love my job. And yeah, there's moments where it's hard. It's hard to see a couple ultimately decide to divorce. It's hard to see a couple not realize their dreams. It's hard when a couple is undergoing grief. I mean, there are parts to my job that are absolutely heartbreaking. But to put it into context against banking, I never got that feeling with banking. With banking, it was sort of like, I think this is okay, right? This is okay. I think, is it okay? No, this doesn't feel right. Maybe it's okay. It was this wrestle. It was this constant, like, sort of unhappiness. I think the other, this is, again, sounding sort of dark, but if I was 85 years old and sort of looking back at my life, like, I remember having this sort of clear thought and banking. I'm like, would I have been proud of what I've done with my life? I knew the answer was no if I stayed in banking. Now, if I'm 85 and I look back and look at my life now and ask that same question, I would absolutely say yes. And that makes me feel that makes me feel great. I can definitely relate to some of those sentiments you're talking about. I know that when I've been in roles where I haven't been happy, I feel like I spend more energy wondering if I'm doing the right thing than on the actual task at hand. And I think when you're doing work that you really enjoy, what's really liberating about that is you don't deploy all this excess energy toward wondering if you're doing the right thing and you focus on the actual work that you're doing, which is a very different feeling. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's exactly my experience. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about your time now as a couples counselor. How did you decide to start your own practice? I love working with couples. And in San Francisco, I would say in general, the therapy community, we've done a great job on certain things. We know we're pretty good with depression now and anxiety and many of the disorders uh, in the DSM. But with couples, the, the research is actually horrible on sort of the, the success rates with quote unquote marital therapy. And so because of my banking experience, I think I, when I was in my master's program and then following my master's program, I trained under sort of the best of the best couples therapists. And there's a bunch of names out there. I wanted to stake my claim on building a group practice that specializes in couples counseling and that we do really specialized work under these masters. And so that best of breed model where our best attempt um, sort of furnish the best skills and tools and resources that we can give couples I sound like a banker right now, but I wanted to bring that to market, which I felt like was a gaping hole in the community at the moment. So, Now, since you specialize in couples counseling, since we talk about career topics on this show, I'd, I'd love to finish up by tapping into some of the insights you might have about how one's career can affect their relationship. Are there any sort of career-related issues that commonly pop up with the couples that you see? And if so, what what are those? 
kind of what you were describing before, which is that if you're wrestling, if you're putting more energy into trying to figure out your career, when you're going into your whatever job that you're, you're at, you're wrestling with those same thoughts when you come home. And for me, I can speak, and also for my clients to some degree, I tried my hardest to sort of shelf my unhappiness or my sort of existential whatever crisis. It's now, I think, called the quarter-life crisis, but that's okay. Uh Um, But I tried to shelf it, right? I tried to leave it at the iBank, but I couldn't. You can't shelf unhappiness. And so where I see it with my clients is they are wondering those same questions, which is, is there more to life? Am I only doing this because I've got a family um, and I need to sort of earn this paycheck and... I feel stuck. I feel powerless. I can't make movement. It absolutely affects a relationship in that way of low grade unhappiness. And you can muscle your way through to some degree, but your spouse or your partner feels it. Your kids feel it. And so it absolutely comes into therapy. And it's, I'm glad it does because at least then we can openly talk about it in the relationship. And that person can give voice to their unhappiness and hopefully we can be resourceful and do that, you know, that brainstorming exercise that is so helpful just to sort of open up your options so we don't get so narrow-minded in our thought process. How do these things turn out? Like, let's say that there is somebody who's really unhappy with their career and it's starting to affect their relationship back home. What ultimately happens to these couples or what ultimately happens to these relationships if the career issue isn't dealt with? It affects a relationship until you figure it out. You could go three, five, seven, 10, 20 years, and that low grade unhappiness, as much as we sort of try to push it, right? We push it aside. We don't want to think about it. We can sort of pound it out. We can muscle through it. It becomes the relationship dynamic. There's this thing that's this, a cloud hanging over the relationship, and it, maybe it's not pouring rain. And maybe at times it is. And sort of it kind of comes and goes like that of a weather weather system. But your career is, it's a huge part to our journey in our, in our life, right? So if you're truly unhappy or if you're wondering about making that career move and you're wrestling with that ongoing, that cloud is going to hang around until you look at it and try to figure out, okay, what is this cloud trying to tell me? You know, what do I need to do to to actually move this weather system so that I am happy. Well, I know that you eventually figured out what steps you needed to take to be happier in your own career. When you look back on your own career change, what's something that you wished you had known that you now know about yourself? There was a lot of stuff that I had to figure out to build this practice. And at the very beginning, I didn't think I could figure it out. I didn't think I could figure out how to build a website. I didn't think that I could figure out how to work with SEO and Google's algorithm, which of course is always a mystery, but I didn't think that I would be a writer. Something that I never was of interest to me is now a side passion of mine, that there are these things that these huge boulders, very sort of that black and white thinking of like, I can't do that. And it turns out that as soon as I started to get a little bit of movement, as soon as I built my first website, as soon as I started picking up just my self-esteem and like, okay, no, I can figure this out. There are YouTube videos. There are resources. There are people that, yeah, you can hire to either teach you or to build stuff that you really can't figure it out. And so what I wish I would have could have told myself once I sort of planted myself into couples counseling, which is 
you're going to figure it out. Before we go, if there's someone else out there who is thinking about shifting from the corporate world into more of the the clinical setting or who wants to get into couples counseling, do you have any advice for them? Do your homework. Um, It's a huge shift. And so for you to go into it conscious, interview people, uh, spend a good chunk of time really sort of digging into that career move to make sure that it is actually what you want to do. So you don't make that leap. And then sort of, like I was telling you earlier, sort of have to go through that bounce around experience, which wouldn't be the end of the world, but it can be a little bit of a cleaner route to open up options and brainstorming and open your mind and just sort of throw crazy ideas on the wall and see if something else shakes out. And then number three, which is, I think the overarching theme of maybe this interview, which is If you do have that low grade hum of, is there more? I would venture to say that there is, you know, I I would be that bold to say, yes, there is more that if you're going to make that leap to be happier, I think that's a wonderful thing that you're seeking happiness and making that leap is complicated and it's wrought with all sorts of different decisions, but your happiness in your career journey is pretty high priority in one's life map. And so to spend some time on it and and do it, I think is a good use of energy. Well, finally, if people want to learn more about the Relationship Institute of San Francisco that you founded, or the work that you do, where can people go to learn a little bit more? So my website is www.triasf.com. I do a lot of Quora responses. So you'll see me sort of pop up there almost on a daily basis. Yeah, it's a fun place to ask any sort of question you ever could wonder about relationships. I like to answer those questions because it sort of taps into that writing passion of mine. Um, So you can find me there. Okay, well, we'll make sure we capture those in the show notes. And just wanted to thank you for giving us a glimpse into your former life as an investment banker and your transition into being a couples counselor and also sharing some useful insights on how your career can affect your relationships. So thanks so much, Erica. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed hearing Erica's insights on the emotions of letting go of one career for another, the impact your career has on your relationships, and the art of starting over. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to explain the negative emotions I wrestled with when I changed careers. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I just wanted to thank General Assembly for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. General Assembly is a pioneer in education and career transformation, specializing in today's most in-demand skills. A leading source for training, staffing, and career transitions, they foster a flourishing community of professionals pursuing careers they love. Visit GA.co to learn how General Assembly can boost your career and use promo code RELAUNCH for 20% off your first class or workshop. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So for today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to talk about one of the topics Erica touched on, the emotions of starting over in your career. So often we invest energy into the practical aspects of changing careers like polishing up your resume, networking, and interview skills, which are important, but there's also the emotional side of leaving one career behind and going back to my own days studying psychology. I actually think these emotions mimic those you feel when you're grieving after any other major loss in your life. Those emotions of changing careers are something I explain in more detail in my seven stages of career change roadmap. I'll include a link to that free resource in the show notes. 
Career change is so emotional because our careers tend to be such a big part of our identities. I'll give you an example from my own life. When I left my 10-year marketing career behind in 2013 to launch my own career consultancy, I definitely went through a period of emotional confusion, very similar to what Erica described when she looked back on her time in the investment banking world. And most of what I felt was loss almost like some part of myself had died off or something. I never really realized how much of my personal identity had been wrapped up in my professional identity as a marketer. And even to this day, it's hard not to refer back to that part of my career because it was just so formative. The week after I left my corporate marketing job, I served as a judge for some marketing awards in London, something I'd been invited to do just before I actually left Haagen-Dazs. And getting this sort of invitation was pretty common in my former life as a marketer. If I ever went to a marketing event before and I told someone I worked at Haagen-Dazs or Goo, another luxury desserts brand in London, there was never a shortage of other marketers or agency folks wanting to chat with me. But on this day at the judging event, after I'd left those titles behind, I'll never forget that moment because there were about 10 other marketing judges sitting around the table, all from big name brands or agencies. And before we started, we went around the room to introduce ourselves one by one, essentially to explain what business we had being there. And Everyone was either head of advertising at this company or marketing director of that brand. And I was the only person who did not say I was associated with some big name brand or company or agency, which was something I could do just a week before. I was actually still wrestling at that time with my new professional identity, trying to figure out how to do something as simple as introducing myself and what my actual title would be. So I ended up giving this clunky answer about being some sort of a independent consultant, which resulted in a lot of people just staring at me with confused looks. And I remember at the break, everyone was mingling with one another and literally not a single person made any attempt to talk to me, which was eye-opening. On the one hand, it seemed kind of shallow, but on the other, kind of understandable because people really didn't know what to do with me. And that was kind of the start of me feeling like I had really given up a lot. My association with the big name brand, the instant credibility you get when you work at a big corporation, the fancy title that gets you invited to join these exact type of judging panels or to be a speaker at a conference or to be courted by agencies who want to work for your brand. Those days were long gone. Then on top of that, I don't know if you do this, but I get those little updates on LinkedIn saying one of my former business school classmates had been promoted to VP of this or managing director of that. And here I am reading those updates on my laptop, sitting in my home office, which was basically our kitchen table. In the more modest home, we decided to rent in a small town way outside the suburbs of London to reduce our expenses as I tried to find my feet and earn my first months of income as a new self-employed business owner. Now, I never regretted my decision to leave the corporate world, but I'll tell you, moments like this still didn't exactly feel fantastic either. Now, I'm telling you all this because I've experienced how hard it is to let go of one job, even if you are thinking you're pursuing something much more meaningful. Your job, even if you don't find it completely fulfilling, still provides you with income, colleagues, 
a professional identity, credibility, a community, sometimes even a cushy lifestyle, a nice office, corporate perks, and an association with a well-known company, institution, or organization. So saying goodbye to all that is really hard. It's hard to start over. It's hard to have to prove yourself all over again. It's hard to realize that your past accomplishments and everything you worked for may not count for much during the next chapter of your career. And it's really hard not to compare yourself to where you could have been if you just stayed the course. This is why moving on to something new is definitely harder than holding on to what you already have. This is why job survey after job survey shows that the majority of people are not engaged with their work, but stick with it anyway. And I think that's the point I'm trying to make here, to just acknowledge that making a career change is not easy. To acknowledge that starting over is really hard because if it were easy, everyone would just do it. And sometimes just knowing that the road will be challenging, that you're going to have moments of doubt, that you're going to feel like you may be falling behind your peer group, that you're going to feel frustrated when you're not making progress as quickly as you want, and that you're maybe even going to feel a little down and out when you hear other success stories when you're still at the very beginning of your journey. That all this is very normal to feel. I can say that because I've experienced it myself. I've seen it come up again and again with my clients, and all I can say is to try to hang in there and just remember why you decided to make this change and what you've already gained just by being on this journey to pursue more meaningful work. This takes me to a quote from James Belasco and Ralph Steyer from Flight of the Buffalo. Change is hard because people overestimate the value of what they have and underestimate the value of what they may gain by giving that up. So my challenge to you, especially if you're in the midst of making some sort of a change and you're wrestling with a few self-defeating thoughts related to your self-worth, is to just remind yourself of why you decided to start down this new road. Exactly what you had hoped to gain with the space you created by letting go of something else. And even if you haven't achieved that yet, to take comfort in the fact that it's still a worthwhile pursuit. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to thank Kunal from Sydney, Australia for leaving this voicemail for me, sharing his experience of leaving his job behind to move from Australia to the UK. Hi, Joseph. This is Kunal. Um, I'm originally from Sydney, Australia. I live in London now. I've been here three months now. Um, I watched your animated video earlier in the year, uh, which talks about the seven stages of career change. I myself was stuck in a very cushy job back in Sydney that I wasn't feeling happy at all. And so earlier this year, I quit my job not knowing what the next step was, went to India for a week for a wedding, came back, and then I made the decision to book a one-way ticket to London without a job in hand. And having moved here, it took me three weeks from the day I landed to um, the day I started my job and the three months so far has, I can already say it's been a life-changing experience and I do get the sense that there is greater things to come. So, yeah, I'm just uh, reaching out to say thanks for the great content that you put out and you've definitely got a fan here. 
Well, thanks so much, Kanal, for sharing your brave story of leaving your job behind and moving all the way from Sydney to London. I also just wanted to let people know that we actually had a chance to meet after one of the talks I gave on career change in London a couple months ago, which was very cool. I rarely get a chance to meet a listener face-to-face, so thanks for being a fan of the show, Kanal, and maybe we'll get a chance to cross paths again as you continue to rebuild your life here in London. Now, around this time of the year, during the holidays, I know a lot of people start to reflect on their own career paths. So if you would like to understand how to navigate the emotional roller coaster of career change, you can download my free seven stages of career change roadmap at careerrelaunch.net slash 31, where you can also find a summary of all the key points Erica and I discussed and learn more about her Relationship Institute of San Francisco. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 31. Thanks so much for being a part of the Career Relaunch community, and a special thanks again to Erica Boissier for sharing her story with us today. This episode was mixed by Richard Pennington, Electrocardiogram wrote and performed our original theme song. I'm Joseph Liu. I'll be back in a couple weeks to share one more episode with you before the end of 2017, featuring a former Olympian turned finance professional. Happy holidays, and I'll see you next time.